We are starting a new series this morning, and I've got to tell you that uh, since the moment I became the senior pastor here, I wanted to do this series, but I have a lot of trepidation in doing it. And if you've gotten onto the website this week and you happen to read the blog that I put there, and I would encourage you to do that, it's a message to single men and women. This is a marriage series. And I am acutely aware that there are several people here that are right now in pain for a number of reasons. One, a lady last night uh, during the Saturday night worship service uh, let me know that she's probably not going to come to the rest of the series, going to go to adult Sunday school instead. And, and, uh, And I understand why her husband of many, many years passed away recently and it still hurts. But I encouraged her, like I'm going to encourage you who may be single for a bunch of reasons, for various reasons. You might be single because you've never married yet. You might still be in high school. You might still be in a dating relationship, but not married. You might even be engaged, but not married. You might be single because devastating things happened in your marriage and a divorce occurred. Uh, That's not uncommon. Not in our church, and it's not uncommon in our society. You might be single because your loved one passed away. And I really am aware how painful, potentially painful, this series can be. So that has sort of been the backdrop of my thinking as I'm developing this series. And the thing that I want to tell you is this. If I just caught you up in the net of singleness, here's what I want to tell you. While the subject may be marriage between a man and a woman, it is so much loftier than that. Because every biblical principle between a man and a woman transcends to the deeper, greater, more beautiful theology of Christ who is marrying and in love with his bride called the church. And we're going to learn through this series, I hope, what that really means and how you function and live as a bride whose husband thoroughly loves us. Also, you who are single today may not be single, hopefully it's not tomorrow, but in the future. And I want you to learn these principles. If you're dating or if you're not dating, but you're in high school or college, these principles, friends, undergird what I've always wanted to do, and that is pre-engagement counseling, which I think is desperately needed because once you engage, it's on autopilot towards the wedding. But friends, listen. You who are single may have loved ones and children who are married who need to hear these principles. And you need to mentor them. So I'm going to encourage you, like I did my friend last night, to stay into this series. If it gets painful, come tell me. I want to know so that I can be praying for you. You know, an English professor wrote these words on the chalkboard to his students, which were made up of men and women. He said, woman without her man is a savage. And then he gave this assignment to his class. He said, I want you to individually 
punctuate that sentence the way you think it needs to be. And the men wrote this, woman without her man is a savage. Interestingly, the women wrote something differently. They wrote, woman without her man is a savage. Now that just gives you, friends, the smallest little glimpse of how complicated it is to do a series on marriage, because how, how do you take a man and a woman who have sometimes thoroughly different perspectives, who are very, very unique and different from one another, how do you take them and provide a marriage series in that complex covenantal relationship? We're going to try to do that because marriage is beautiful, it is difficult, it is joyful, it is challenging. It may be, friends, the hardest thing that many of us will ever undertake, yet it has the potential to produce the greatest joy you'll ever experience, apart from eternal life. All of these elements of difficulty, beauty, joy, challenge are found in this book called The Song of Songs which tells us about a man and a woman who begin to love each other. They're identified as Solomon. Some believe this is Solomon, the son of David. Others believe this is God's way of every man and God's way of every woman. It's a fictional character. Whatever you believe, it's identified, the man is, as Solomon. And the only name we have for the woman in this poem, because this is a love poem, the only name we have is the Shulamite. So this entire book is about Solomon and this Shulamite, but it's a two-layer book, meaning that while the interplay of this relationship is right front and center, there's a deeper and there's a more fundamental teaching, and it's Jesus and his bride. The entire book has both layers going through all eight chapters. And we're going to look at the love of this couple that's shown in its various uh, development. It begins, the book does, with a man and woman growing in their passion, longing for one another, and it progresses, this relationship does, to the point, friends, listen, where their love creates pain when they're apart from one another. That's right. That's a part of young love. I don't know about you. Actually, I do know about many of you because you've told me this. That while it used to create pain, now after 30 years, 20 years of marriage, when you get those times apart, it's kind of fun. It's kind of refreshing. But in this young love, it was painful to be apart for one another. And as it progresses, um, their love progresses to the point where they get married. It's a pure love, it's a young love, it's strong, it's free, it's wonderful. Doesn't take long though after chapter 3's wedding to get to chapter 5's first painful conflict. You know, shortly after the Rocky movie, Sylvester Stallone was asked whether he thought boxing was good for physical conditioning. And he said this, he said, boxing's a wonderful sport for conditioning as long as you can holler, cut. Many think marriage is wonderful. As long as you've got the option of calling it quits, if pain arises. Well, for Solomon 
and his young bride, they had a, they had a painful conflict in chapter 5. But they didn't quit. They didn't yell cut. They worked through it. And so their love for each other matured, it deepened, and it grew even greater. And so we come to our text in chapter 8, verse 5, and we all can look at it, and it says this. You ready? Who is that coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? The focus is on her. You got to get this. The focus is on her as the couple was walking on a romantic walk through the countryside. Now let's pause for a moment and just reflect on that. Men, husbands, notice with me her posture. Leaning on her beloved. To the person observing which many think these were the daughters of Jerusalem walk, watching this couple from the, the city. To those observing, they, had a, they were a picture of oneness, a picture of unity. Friends, listen. Men, listen. It's also a picture of her dependency and vulnerability to her husband. She's leaning on her beloved. And as we are allowed to peek and to what she's about to say to him, we need to keep in mind that he's listening. In our entire text this morning, verses 5 through 7, Solomon speaks no word. He listens. And he allows his wife to express her heart as she leans upon his chest and looks into his eyes and here's the words that she speaks. And let's start at verse 6. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. For love is strong as death, jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. These are the words of the wife to her husband. And from them, we gain five qualities of a supremely satisfying marriage that is honoring to God. Let's look at them. Number one. First, we see the security of love. She says, set me, set me like a seal over your heart like a seal on your arm. Now this is Hebrew poetry. And friends, when you are studying Hebrew poetry, you learn fairly quickly that in its use, anatomical terms are fairly imprecise. The word arm here probably better is translated finger. And what we see is the seal was in use. And a seal was a symbol of ownership, it was a symbol of possession and affiliation. In fact, you see this in uh, Genesis chapter 41. You remember Joseph, he was elevated to the second in command over all of Egypt, and Pharaoh takes off his ring and puts a gold chain around his neck and then drives around town in a chariot with Joseph 
and the second chariot. See, Joseph was given authority. Joseph was given ownership. Joseph was given uh, possession and affiliation. You see, the seals were used to indicate ownership of one's valuable possessions. So Joseph, friends, listen, now owned everything of Pharaoh except for the queen. Now, can you picture this couple on this romantic walk together with his arm around her shoulders, her arm around his waist, as she reaches for his chest as she's speaking these words, and then she reaches up to his hand that's encircling your shoulders, and friends, it's out of that that she makes this appeal. So she wanted him to love her in his heart, seal upon your heart, as well as in his actions. Solomon, I want you to love me privately, and I want you to love me publicly. When they were together, when they were apart. You see, a seal, friends, was only to be broken by the person to whom it was sent. If a king sent a sealed letter to another king and his ambassador was to deliver it, if anybody opened that seal other than the intended recipient, they would be put to death. That's the power of the seal. And the wife is saying to her husband, Men, listen, I'm all yours. And I'm only yours. All of me is for you exclusively. All my emotions, my desires, my loyalty, my faithfulness, my body, all of who I am belongs to you and only you. Those are the words of the Shulamite. She says, I want you to be secure, Solomon, in my love, and I want you to give all of who you are to me. Place me like a seal over your heart and over your arm. Don't let anyone else break this seal of your love. Solomon, don't flirt with any other woman. Don't let any other woman catch your eye because there's wedding vows, friends, that you make, and then there's marriage vows that you live. And one's a whole lot harder and more important than the other. That's why I don't take off my wedding ring ever. Because I want everyone who meets me to know that I have given my heart to my wife. Friends, I've got to stress to you this morning that this was a married couple growing in their marriage because going to deeper levels in your marriage maturing in your love it's the right and proper way that god honoring marriages progress but i want you to notice something with me from this text she's asking him appealing to him to place her like a seal over his heart and his arm wives friends listen are you that bold and that gentle with your husband Not demanding with them, not angry with them, not accusative, but in your vulnerability within the folds of your husband's love, asking him to place you like a seal privately, publicly. Man, I've got to ask you this. I hope every one of you are listening. 
Believe me, I've been staring at in this mirror all week. This question's been asking been asked of me many times. Men, have you fostered? Have you fostered this freedom in your wife? That she would have the intimate audacity to say these words to you, knowing that you love her so exclusively, knowing that you will eagerly do whatever you can to have her seal, wanting, desiring, full commitment from your wife. If you're not giving your wife this, she will not become vulnerable. It's impossible. It's a law of marriage. Because this is a picture of a marriage that is so secure that it allowed for vulnerability, it encouraged full surrender, and it, friends, it guaranteed complete faithfulness. But it was also a picture of wisdom, isn't it? I, mean, I believe what she was saying to her husband on that romantic walk through the fields and vineyards, the very place that their love had begun to grow, I believe what she was saying was that love, Solomon, is not going to automatically stay this strong. They were wise because they knew marriage takes constant effort. It requires ever-present work. And if it's to be fully satisfying, fully God-honoring, men, our wives have to feel secure in our love. That there is no other woman, real or imagined, in the flesh, on the computer, no hobby, no career, no promotion, that is more important and a greater priority than them. That's the security of their love. But it goes on. There's a strength in their love. The strength of love. She explains to Solomon why she makes this appeal of being a seal over his heart and arm. It's because she says, look at your text, love is strong as death. You got to get that. Look in your text. Love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Now, friends, listen, you want to impress somebody? I'm going to give you a theological term. It's called synonymous parallelism, and that's what you have in that little phrase. Love is paralleled with jealousy. This is Hebrew poetry. Strong is paralleled with fierce and death with grave. It's beautiful. It's powerful. You see, what the wife is saying to her husband is that the power of their love is as strong as the power of death. In other words, love holds its victims under its sway in exactly the same way that death does. Death is unavoidable for everyone. And the Shulamite was saying, Solomon, you are unavoidably in my sights of love. Once smitten, there is no escape. It's a rightly one-way, irreversible path. It's permanent, unalterably powerful toward you, she says. And then she says, jealousy is fierce as the grave. You know, the word grave is familiar to many of us with the word, Hebrew word Sheol. And you know how the Bible describes Sheol? It's very interesting. It's sometimes characterized as a monster with an insatiable appetite, with a wide open throat and gaping jaws. That's how the Bible describes the grave. And her love, the jealousy of her love is compared to that. You know what biblical jealousy is? 
You want to know what jealousy that's honoring to God looks like? Here it is, you ready? It's the emotion of single-minded devotion, which when turned away from self, that's key, produces an overpowering zeal to promote the glory of the person who is loved. Friends, that's jealousy. That's right, God-honoring attribute of God, imitating God jealousy, and it ought to course in our love for our spouse. For this wife, the Shulamite, it was the single-minded passion that she wanted nothing more than the welfare of her husband. She was telling Solomon, let me be a seal on you because I want nothing more than to make you feel like the most loved man in the world. Wow. Men, do you want that kind of love from your wives? And they better be secure in, in your love. Or they cannot give it. Because she was telling Solomon, let me be that seal. Because no one will ever love you the way I do. And I will love you with my whole life. Instead of reminding him, ladies, of his faults, which all of his husbands have, instead of criticizing him for his weaknesses, she burned with a zeal to be a blessing to her husband. A love so inescapably powerful that it rivaled the very grip of death. She goes on. We've only gotten two of them. There's three more. Here's the third, the source of love. How could she love Solomon like this? What was their hope for this kind of love? What's our hope for this kind of love in our marriages? Well, friends, the answer is right in the very middle of this poetic stanza, and it gives the reason for the strength of her love. Here's what it says. It's flashes, are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. You know what happens if you translate that Hebrew literally in English? Here's what you get. You ready? This is cool. Her darts are darts of fire, a flame of Yah. And immediately the image of the Valentine card of Cupid drawing the bow ready to release the dart of love springs into mind because that's what she was seeing. The confidence she has and the strength of her love for her husband is not found in her, which is ever prone to fickleness and weakness. It's the very flame of the Lord, and it's consuming her so that there's nothing left but faithful, secure, strong love for her husband. This is the love, friends, that Paul speaks about in Romans where it says God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The imagery there is of a funnel and God's pouring his love into this funnel which is going into our hearts and it's, it's, it's a constant waterfall of love so that it fills our hearts up and overflows to other people, no one more significantly than our spouse. Do you understand, friends, what confidence this gives us? It's God's constant, never-ending, intense, burning 
love that beats in our hearts and seals our love for our spouses. But listen, this is so important. It is available and an inexhaustible supply only, listen, only as we walk faithfully with God. She goes on, there's a stamina that's in supremely satisfying love and God-honoring marriages. There's a stamina of love. You know, when we were at the Adirondack mission trip several weeks ago, we found ourselves in that abnormal New York heat plagued by hornets. We were clearing a lot of land and several people were getting bit by these hornets. And so one of the staff of the mission up there at the Adirondack uh, ministry center came and he poured gasoline all over the nest down these holes in the ground. And after it had saturated thoroughly, thoroughly into the ground, he lit, he lit it up. We were standing around, Jake Kowalski holding the water hose and the fire took off and some of the fire began to creep away from the, the holes in the ground and setting the grass that was saturated with, with gas on fire. And Jake began to pour water on it from the hose. But the most peculiar thing happened, the water wouldn't go out. I mean, the, the fire wouldn't go out. That would be bad. <laughs> the fire, no matter how many gallons of water he kept pouring on it, the fire kept burning. This is the imagery that the Shulamite has when she says, many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. You see, just a moment before this, She's looking up into her husband's eyes and she talks to him about the fire of her love, which now she says is unquenchable. It's a flame, Solomon, that will not go out. You know, when I lead couples at their weddings through their vows, almost customarily there's a vow that says for better or for worse. You see, friends, she's got the for worse in mind. Because all through the Bible, water and floods refer to times of testing, times of difficulty, calamity, trial. No marriage is immune to this. Floods and waters will come. This is seen in marriages where difficulty moves them together rather than apart. It's also seen in marriages when difficulty comes in and it moves them apart. Years ago, before... I even came to this church. There was a couple, family in our church, whose little girl was diagnosed with a disease that grew worse and worse till she died. And that set that husband and life friends on a path of divergence where they went in different directions. It was so painful for him that he had no arm left to put around the shoulder of his wife. It was so painful for her that to travel through this alone with no strength from her husband to give her that she walled her heart off from him and years later, they finally left each other. The Shulamite is saying to her husband that when these difficulties in life come, I'm not going to let them separate us my love for you is unquenchable but you know it's one thing friends to pledge undying love 
in the midst of a romantic bubble on your wedding day and another to live out your vows after you've tasted tragedy. His wife was saying, I know Solomon, I know hard times are coming. But I will cling to God. And the very flame of Yahweh will consume my life so that I beat with an unquenchable spring of desire for you, my husband. Wow. There's one more. It's called the sacrifice of love. She finally says at the end of verse 7, if a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. And how strange this sounds to our English ears until you realize the beauty of what she has said. Solomon, my, li- my love is freely given to you. There's no amount of money that could ever purchase the love I have for you And there's no amount of money, listen, that is ever going to be worth destroying our marriage over. You've never had to earn it, Solomon. You didn't have to buy it. Those gifts that you give me don't increase my love. I appreciate you even more, but they don't increase my love because I love you freely and I always will. Friends, the moment that love tries to be earned and bought, it's destroyed. I've never yet experienced a couple that I have officiated their wedding that did not come to the altar with freely given love. But on the same token, I've never ever experienced in counseling and in my own marriage where difficulty is coming and we've drifted apart, where I have not begun to make my wife earn it. I don't like your weight gain. I don't like your haircut. I don't like your job that takes you all over the place. I'm unsatisfied. If you want my love back, you better make your change. And the marriage is on its way to destruction. It's the one core ingredient that we see in the love of Christ. 1 John 3, 1. By this we know love that He laid down His life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. This is the sacrifice of freely given love that does not need to be earned. Men, there's no amount, and ladies too, there's no amount of money, there is no promotion, there is no career, hobby, or interest worth losing the person that God brought to you. Hold tightly, she says to Solomon, to your precious gift that I have freely given to you. Friends, You know why I'm doing this series? The alarm bells in the marriages of this church have been going off for years and years. It is time 
that we begin to love our spouses. The way that Christ loves the church. And until we do this church, friends, I'm promising you, cannot ever be powerfully effective for the kingdom of God. A strong, effective church is built of strong, satisfying, God-honoring marriages. And my marriage struggles, and I'm pretty sure that almost everybody else's does. And if we're going to bring honor to God, then every time we hear the word of God speak like we have this morning, we need to stand up and we need to make the changes that he's telling us to make. Amen? I'm going to ask you, and I'm asking you to be honest. If you will commit throughout this series to apply these principles with the help of God and no longer put your marriage in neutral because if you're coasting, you're always going downhill. If you will commit to making your marriages supremely satisfying, honoring to God, I'm going to ask that you stand up right now and know that I am standing with you. And if you're not committed to that, that's fine. This, this is true in your relationships of dating and in your relationships of engagement. My aim in this series, friends, is not difficult. In fact, it's summed up in Song of Songs, chapter 5, verse 16, where she says to her husband, this is my beloved, and this is my friend. That's what I want. That's what I want to give Denise. That's what I want her to give me. Let me pray for you. Lord, I pray for my friends who are standing. Lord, we have a church filled with struggling marriages. And Lord, I pray for all of us. Lord, that we would apply what we are learning from your word. And that we would live it out. That we would experience a deeper, stronger, more mature love that is supremely satisfying, honoring to you. Lord, take this commitment. Lord, I pray that you would sear it on every one of our consciences. That we would live it out in the strength that you provide. And in Jesus' name, amen.